before you go on though would you explain what performance-based fees are if i manage your money and you lose money or i make you two percent i don't charge any fee whatsoever but both of those sound um, like plausible scenarios if you're managing my money continue oh please This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Wu-Tang. 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 Wu-Tang has come up more than you would think on this investment podcast. It's come up the same amount in the, these conversations that they come up in my normal like work conversations. I've talked about Wu-Tang all the time. But wouldn't you guess, if I'd said that Wu-Tang would come up in our investment podcast, you'd probably guess that it'd be about Wu-Tang Financial. True. Good point. But no, it's not. Yeah, I mean, so why are you talking about Wu-Tang today? Oh, yeah, I guess, I guess that's important. I went to a Wu-Tang concert last night. It was oh. Wu-Tang and the Colorado Symphony. And? Yeah. <laughs> bummer hey i love that you're talking wu-tang and i love that we're, we're taking some time to see how we're doing check in to but i think you're playing the wrong song doogles thank you for being a friend travel down the road and back again your heart is true you're a pal and a confidant <laughs> i gotta thank you for that man here the Golden oh. Girls song. I, I would have never even Googled it if it wasn't for last week. And that puts you in a great mood. Have you heard the Wu-Tang cover? <laughs> no. Well, it probably doesn't exist, but it should. <laughs> All right. Uh, can we kick this thing off with a little bit of listener mail? I, I mean, right. listener mail is like my favorite thing in the world. We got some listener mail from Josh. And what he sent over, this is in response to our conversation about buy now, pay later last week. Uh, and he said, if we're going to talk about different types of, it's a hidden cost debt, right? Which is what we, we discussed a little bit with buy now, pay later. Yeah. We should also discuss income share agreements or ISAs as they're, as they're known. Uh, and specifically he sent over this website, dfinance.com to check out. Everyone go check that out. We, we, we said that we're probably going to be talking about buy now, pay later as the, as it kind of progresses, you know, over the yeah. coming months, years. And so I think when we do come back to that, it's worth chatting about this as well. I mean, so income share agreements are interesting. And, and Josh, I'll dig in and check out the website and your comments in more detail. But like, I was thinking that kind of as education related, but I think he makes a fair point that it is in a way, another type of debt per se. And it's kind of like a hidden piece of debt. My favorite thing about the listener mail, and I'll do this verbatim that Josh sent in was he said, it's not debt. We just give you money. And then you pay us back over time. See how much better that is than debt? Well, hey, so it's, uh, it's they give, they provide a service or some knowledge, typically. So it's not necessarily money, right? Am I thinking about this right? No, you're not. That's like saying, <laughs> if, if, I use, if I use my credit card to buy something to, and someone provides me the good or service, it's not I'm debt. Not, I'm not spending money. I'm getting the good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I'm happy you called me out on that one. 
No, here's the thing I like. I mean, I'm not really taking a side on this. I, I think there's probably a place for some income share agreements. And in some places, it might be better than we've talked about the student loan debt crisis in many ways on the pod, right? Here's how it's different and a part I like about it. If I went to buy a Mercedes tomorrow and the dealership was like, hey, you know what? It's not like 700 bucks a month. It's like 5% of your income, whatever your income is. That's a different equation. And I think most of these things, what? Keep talking. Because I just <laughs> take your shovel and keep digging, bud. I mean, most of these things are saying, hey, we're giving you skills that will allow you to make money that will pay us back in a way that creates a win-win situation. It's better than some of the for-profit stuff that ITT techs long ago that would just take your money and you'd be as unemployable coming out with a degree as you were going in. If what you're saying is that if you come out of this education and you don't have an income, then you don't owe us anything. Right? So we, we only benefit when you benefit. Am I grossly misinformed? I thought that's how these things worked. Yeah, but yes, but it's a, I think the point is you can't say that this isn't debt because like it, it is, mean, it's, it's, it's a liability. Like it would hit your balance sure. sheet on something that sure. you owe there. You well, could no, say, it only hits your balance sheet. If you make money, we should talk about this in the future. <laughs> we should talk about this in the future. I don't want to get into it right now because to your point, I do think that there are structures for ISAs and come share agreements that yeah. work and I, and that that broad sense of if you don't benefit, we don't benefit, I actually think is like, that's, that's great noble. The proverbial devil is in the details with this on how it actually ends up getting executed. But, but anyway, wanted to give a shout yeah. out. No, yeah, Josh, okay. thanks for the mail. Diggles, let me just tie up one more thing. Like, if more of your typical top tier one research universities in the US did something like this, Rather than say, hey, pay us $50,000 a year, and some of you are going to go out and make $30,000 a year, and some of you are going to go out and make $100,000 a year. It would close that disconnect that we've talked about before of some people not understanding that the investment you make financially pretty much in most cases has to pay off. Anyway, let me, let me read more. I've seen ISAs painted in a pretty positive light as a potential win-win, but I, I've probably only seen half the story here. Speaking of win-win, and speaking of student loan debt, can I reach into the fishbowl for a little transition? Please. All right. So this is another example of some bipartisanship happening, which I'm, I'm getting more and more excited about. I love that that's occurring when there's so much uh, division that exists out there. So there's the infrastructure bill, Right. Yeah. Hey, the infrastructure bill got like 70 votes in the Senate. Yeah. Like, that's amazing. I mean, exactly. I, yeah. Exactly. Applause there, for that. There, there's some political things happening over in the House, but let's put that aside. Let's just celebrate the bipartisanship. And now there's another bipartisanship bill that's being proposed uh, in the Senate by Senate Majority Whip Dick Durbin on one side, Democrats, and then Senator John Cornyn on the Republican side. And what they're trying to do is make it easier for student loan debt to be a part to be discharged as part of bankruptcy. We, we, we talked about the student loan crisis before 1.7 trillion dollars, right? In student, it's like crazy how much student loan debt exists out there. And today, there are, I'll say that there are like two things that make it difficult 
Did you know that it's difficult to? Oh, I, I, I think you're being kind and saying difficult. I think it's basically impossible to get rid of student loan debt. You meaning you go bankrupt, it doesn't go. Everything else goes away. Your, your mortgage, your cars, uh, that all goes away. I think you can even die, and it gets passed down to your family. Can you fact check me on that? Yeah. So, well, it depends, right? Debt generally does. But here, there, there are two things that make it difficult. I'm gonna, I'm gonna put my kind word back in there. Two things that make it difficult. One is what you just stated around the perception of impossibility. Okay. There's this perception that it's it's impossible to do, which is not true, but it is difficult. And part of that perception comes from the fact that the whenever a case arises around student loan debt, what the lenders will do is they if it, if it's a difficult case that they believe they're going to lose, they settle it. And so they settle all these cases that would be difficult. So anything that actually goes to court, they win. So all the precedent that exists out in the courts basically is showing that it's like it's really, really hard. And so then when lawyers are are talking to their their clients, they're like, well, 96 percent of of the time when this is raised, you end up losing. So what do you want to do? Right. So that that's one. And then there's another side of it that is it actually is just really, really hard. Um, so unlike there's a lot of debt that you mentioned that will just go away for student loan debt, you actually have to check some boxes to show that that you can discharge it as a part of, as a part of bankruptcy. And so you, you have to prove that there's an undue hardship, which is really, which is kind of hard to do. Um, yeah. Or you have to show that this wasn't a part of an educational benefit. And that has, right. someone has one in court. It was a few years ago, I think, but someone has one in court to, to show that, but it's, it's really difficult. Any, any reaction before I, I mean, uh, I just heard, Hey, Hey, Skippy, you know why this is so difficult? Cause uh, the facts support what you said. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not saying that you're wrong, but I, I'm saying that there, there is there's a perception that it's like impossible and it's not impossible, but it is it's harder than it should be regardless. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. No, like it's it's very difficult. Let's it, let's it, settle it, on that. It's very difficult, very difficult. But my point is bipartisanship. And so these two senators announced this bill. They're calling it Fresh Start Through Bankruptcy Act of 2021. I feel like people in Congress spend at least 74 percent of their time just coming up, like ignore what they're even trying to propose they come up with these names and they spend the rest of their time trying to figure out what fits into the name uh, i've had the pleasure uh, which is the wrong word the opportunity to do some lobbying on the hill have you ever oh. done that oh man no. it's uh it's an experience 50 okay. percent incredibly positive i feel like i'm driving change for the country i love 50 percent. this feels really slimy it's only <laughs> people with a big paycheck that get and I'm not claiming I have a big organizations with funds behind them that yep. get the ability to actually drive change. Very interesting experience. But but in doing that, you run into a lot of these. I think they're called interns, but they probably have a fancier name. It, basically, the Fellows. volunteers that are helping the congressional and Senate staffs. What you say? Fellows? Maybe. Anyway, like I, I understand I it, it's some... Um, Smarter college kids that are politically minded that are coming up with these great names, Dougals. But it's phenomenal. Fresh start. I mean, I just feel, and it's all caps. Like, that's what I want. I <laughs> oh, want it's all caps? They went all caps on this it's one? All, it's oh, all man. caps. Um, so, in short, I didn't read the, the bill, but, like, the summary that I saw, in short, would say that if this ends up passing, it's going to let uh, federal student loans become eligible for discharge of bankruptcy after 10 years. So if, if it's a, within 10 years, and, and I think they're making this um, concession effectively because 
what a lot of the loan companies say is like, I go to school, I take out all my loans, and then I just immediately declare bankruptcy because I have nothing to lose at that point. And so we don't want that to happen. So I think what they're saying is if, uh, if after 10 years, you have hardships here and you declare bankruptcy, then good to go. If it's within 10 years, you have to go through the normal process. That's kind of what they're saying. So. Well, I mean, so I didn't think we were talking at all about student loan debt or income sharing agreements today. And you're going to get me fired up. Like that's better, I guess. So let me try and put on my optimistic positive hat, but it still pisses me off. Like if whether it's the federal, so one, this would only be federal student loan debt. A lot of stuff, uh, student loan debt comes outside of that box. The fact that you can like lose your house and get a fresh start and not get a fresh start on your student loans, I think is a little absurd. And that creates a disconnect in the market. You can get a student loan for any amount of money at any time because the creditors go, we can't, we can't lose on this. Like, even if this person goes bankrupt, we'll still get our money eventually. Even if this person dies, will still get our money eventually like th it messes up the equation in terms of credit worthiness for these borrowers and if you're a 17 year old that doesn't know much about money you're in a vulnerable position when you go accept these loans i agree and i think this is better i haven't read the bill so maybe i'm armchairing this a little bit too much there's one side of it where i could see that if you think about the the uh, traditional college student where you could also say, all right, you graduate after 10 years, it's probably like you've probably accumulated more at that point. And so, you know, you mentioned like your house, you get cars, like it probably yeah. takes a little while. In that world, it's a bit short sighted because it's not thinking that more and more students are actually moving to the quote unquote non traditional camp where you're you're going back to school, you might be more like you're over 25, you might be in your 30s, and you might have already accumulated all that stuff by the time you've even gone to school and now you're leaving school, which has given you a predatory debt situation. And so 10 years later, like you could be in your forties and now you're like, I, I think it's ignoring that, that camp potentially. Yeah. Again, I haven't read the bill, but yeah. arm sharing it. No, I, I guess I just think that I wish there was less of a disconnect. I mean, I think these lenders should be saying this person's getting a degree in computer science. That's in high demand oh, at, nice. uh, at a top, 50 school like oh. so it's gonna so of course i'm gonna give them money because their earning potential is x and then you get into a situation where it's a win-win-win like you they're paying three to five percent of their income back for an eight-year term i mean i'm just making up numbers here and they go that makes sense for me that makes sense for the lender everybody's happy i wish there was just a little more thought in this equation because well, I won't speak ill of other majors, but there's some majors where you're just not, you don't get that much benefit and they're incredibly expensive. Well, I don't want to touch on all the thought because I haven't read the thing, but that that's what it yeah. seemed like the takeaway was. So Skippy the Skeptic is back. You, yeah, you seem concerned make, make with armchairing this and I'm I'm happy to armchair it, Diggles. Yeah, and you're standing on the armchairs. <laughs> I really am. All, all right, right fishbowl time. Change the subject before I get fired up. You want to talk about mobile homes? Always. NPR did uh, a piece this week, and they broke down where a lot of this uh, Fannie Freddie money is going that um, was intended to help the American homeowner, right? Uh, as part of COVID relief, Fannie and Freddie issued a bunch of uh, lower interest rate funds, 
with the claimed intent to help people keep their homes. Uh, what a fair amount of private equity firms did and other like real estate type conglomerates is they went around and started buying up uh, mobile home parks. I totally get this because I've looked at those economics before and I think it's a com- pretty pretty compelling investment. Like I've looked at yep. REITs that operate mobile homes and I've oh, always really? felt like that's a, uh, I'm intrigued there, right? So from yeah. I'm not talking trash about the private equity firm or anything else. Like I think it makes a lot of sense. Uh, what's happening here, it appears, is a lot of these mobile homes were owned by like mom and pop ownership groups, right? And they lived right in the community and there was a lot of flexibility with, hey, I can't make rent this month, so they'd work with you, right? And for those who aren't familiar, typically how these parks work is you own the mobile home on top of the land, but then you might pay 300 bucks a month to basically lease that land on a monthly basis. So that's one of the reasons this is some of the more affordable places to live in America, because... The mobile home is, they say it's typically about half the cost of a home in a similar community, right? The mobile home is fairly affordable as your upfront cost. I mean, these are like, in a way, tiny homes before tiny homes, but they're bigger than tiny homes, if that makes any sense. (laughs) The world's (laughs) largest tiny home. Long story short, here's what's happening. These PE firms and other savvy uh, real estate conglomerates found a way to access all this really cheap Fannie and Freddie money. They run around, they buy a bunch of mobile home parks from people who used to own the community who are retiring. So the mom and pops I mentioned before, and they walk in, they immediately start raising rents. They are run like big corporations. So there's really no forgiveness on if you're going to be late and they're uh, moving towards more evictions. Obviously, there's still an eviction uh, moratorium in many places because of COVID release. You know, we've talked a lot about, hey, how, like, what slant does the article you're consuming have? I think this is definitely from the slant of these people are getting robbed. But where I want to connect it here, Dougals, and get your thoughts is there is another alternative, and that is community ownership of the mobile park so you can create a co-op co-op where all the owners say there's 100 people there basically self-finance the land and they pay rent to themselves that has been happening as well but those co-ops are not able to finance at one or two percent like the private equity firm is there they have to go to a more traditional bank get much higher rates and so where I think the unintended consequences are happening, and I think the legislation needs to be updated, is simply trying to allow, because the co-op allows people to actually keep their home. It goes to the heart of the intent of this low-cost money, I think. But I imagine with the co-op come some stipulations and restrictions and what you can do, kind of like with a, like a home ownership association right? Like an HOA that you have as well. I imagine something like that also comes. Uh, Absolutely. But most of these places already have, I mean, an ownership group that has all sorts of stipulations. Okay. I've never thought a lot about the economics behind uh, what would happen in mobile home parks. It's really interesting. And I hadn't, I didn't even think that there were, you mentioned REITs, right? That exist there. 
Do you have any? Do you know of any of those? I'd love to like check it out and check out the prospectus to not off the more. top of my head. No, it's been a while, but they're definitely they're definitely out there, mm-hmm. and it's an I'll interesting it dynamic because, as I mentioned, if you're talking about the private equity firm, I think this makes perfect sense. You have, in a lot of cases, almost inelastic demand uh, with the ability to raise rates, and these people have a hard time going anywhere else. Yeah, you know, like Tina, you raise their lot rate by fifty bucks, which could be a substantial portion of their total budget, but it's still the cheapest place in town by half. So yeah. it still is a deal. Yeah, it makes me think, you know, we talked about my girl Tina a few months ago, I think at this point, right? There is no yeah. alternative. And we discussed it with regard to what's happening in the market right now and where you can invest to get return. But I hadn't thought about where Tina exists, like when she just like strides around town, you know, strutting her stuff in various areas of the market, yeah. right? And the, right? And, and the impact that that then has on the economics of even those micro environments. Well, and your girl is, she set up shop at the mobile par- home park, man. That's where she is. Wild, what she and did. so to connect this, uh, like, I really want to make sure I'm articulating this well, because I just think it's so fascinating Co- to connect this to other conversations we've had going for the past several months. Like, this is also part of the BlackRock buying suburban homes and stuff, because these investment firms are looking for places to create yield and there's just everything so expensive that they're going, Oh, hard assets, real estate. Oh, mobile home parks are awesome opportunity. And then you talk about the housing crisis and the lack of affordable housing. You're going, these mobile home parks are going to be even more in demand because there's no affordable housing in a lot of desirable places. I just, let me let me actually give the details of the article slash podcast. It's called Mobile Home Parked on Planet Money on NPR. It's cool. I'll check it out. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna reach into the fishbowl and pull out something with regard to the search for yield. A lot that's coming out right now is saying that there it like yield is going to be with regard to bonds, with regard to uh, just returns on stocks, right, decreasing over time because we've had such a boom in that world. And tying to something we've talked about a good amount, you have to watch, well, in any world, but especially in that world, you have to watch the amount you're paying in fees. Yeah. Yep. Right. And so there is this Wall Street Journal article that came out that's called Say Goodbye to the 1% Investment Advisor Fee. And what that's alluding to is basically if you, maybe not even alluding, what's a straight hit up on the noggin is if you want someone to manage your money, then you got to pay them. And historically... A, a give or take 1% has been like the going rate for uh, registered investment advisors, right? So, yes. right. So if I'm investing $10,000, I say, Skippy, take my $10,000, bring me return. You're basically going to be like, all right, well, give me a hundred bucks, right? Mm-hmm. And give me a hundred bucks a year. I'll manage it for you. That one, that like might sound like nothing. If you're making uh, what people are expecting, 17%, you know, after inflation <laughs> returns, yeah. right? If, you, if you're like, well, I'm bringing a seven, 17 tendies, take one of them, like no, you know, no big deal. Right. However, tendies. yeah, I know, I know. I'm just, I'm just throwing out language. I don't even understand, but <laughs> in that world, it might seem like nothing, but um, I just, I threw out some, some numbers uh, just to, so we can get like a sense for what 1% does over time. Right. Cause that, that's one year. If you go, instead of making 17%, I'm going to make 16%, whatever, yeah. but here, here's some figures. Well, so, Diggles, let me guess, because I haven't run these numbers in a while. It's as much as a third, like like 30, 40 years later, 1% is as much as a third, a quarter of return. Yeah, well, if you think about the power of compounding, you basically yeah. take the number of years and it's like a little more than that, 
times 1%, right? I mean, effectively. So if you, um, let's say that you're, you're doing this over 25 years, right? And I'm expecting a 5% return, but instead I get a 4% return, you're going to lose about 30%, right? If you, you will have 30, 30% of your, yeah. your hard-earned I mean, that 1% on. takes one-third of your money. It's, it's absolutely yeah, exactly. staggering. If you go to 7% versus 6%, then we're talking about a little like 26%, a little over 25%. Now, if you look at the numbers that some folks are projecting over the you know coming decade or so, which is like one and a half percent, like basically nothing, then you're effectively saying you're taking like they just take everything <laughs> right away, away yeah. at that point. Right. Well, more than. <laughs> yeah. Yes. yes. If it's expected <laughs> exactly. returns are like, say, barely positive or maybe negative. I mean, like they, yeah. it's, it takes a lot. So yeah. the point of this is saying if you look at these numbers, it's a big deal that's compounding over time. And folks that are getting let's say hundreds of thousands of dollars that they're giving to RIAs, registered investment advisors, you're paying so much money um, in order to, this article says uh, the average investor with $750,000 paid 1.04% of investment assets um, in fees in 2020, which is up from 1.02% in 2015, right? The more money that you have to invest with someone, the lower rates. And so an investor with 10 million, it's saying paid 0.62%. Anyway, those are, those are high numbers. Uh, and it was throwing out some alternatives. I'll, I'll I'll name what the alternatives are, and then I just love to get your sense or your take on fees in general in this world. And also, we can talk about hedge funds because I know that that's come up a bit before. Yeah. So alternatives it's throwing out are flat annual fees. So don't charge me a percent. Just say like I'm gonna I'm gonna charge you five grand, no matter how much you go up or down. Like if you give me one million, that's not half as much work as two million. So I'll just take five thousand dollars from you. Yep. It's just another world where it says. Uh, we're going to charge you monthly or hourly fees. So kind of like a lawyer, mm-hmm. right? Effectively, like I'm going to, you, I'm going to charge you based on the work that I do. And then the third one they threw out there was basically just lower fees. <laughs> like just to stop ripping people off and just charge lower fees yep. um, or what they threw out there. So All right. pause. let me, let me jump in. Uh, so my favorite guy in the space is James Osborne. Uh, he's local. He's uh, from Lakewood, Colorado, uh, basinasset.com. And if you go to his Twitter, the t- tweet pinned on top of his profile is the ridiculous nature of asset-based fees. He is obviously a fee-only uh, asset advisor. He has an interview with Michael. I never know how to say his. I always say his name wrong. Michael Kleitz. Uh, no, the not, not not the Godfather. <laughs> I'll put it on the Twitter because I butchered his name. Who is like the advisor to financial advisors and talks a lot about how to build a a group. I'm with you in most cases that fee. So if one, I think getting quality financial advice can be incredibly important once you have a certain foundation and a certain net wealth. So I just say that. Two, I think I think asset based fees are wrong for the majority of people, even though they're most common. Um, I think fee only makes a lot of sense. Or my favorite is always performance-based fees. Performance-based fees are hard, and our regulations made it nearly impossible to implement unless you're an accredited investor, which creates all sorts of additional hoops. But my side tangent here... Can you, sorry, go. before you go on, though, would you explain what performance-based fees are? If I manage your money and you lose money or I make you 2%, I don't charge any fee whatsoever. But both of those sound um, like plausible scenarios if you're managing my money continue oh please so (laughs) 
Buffett did this in an early partnership where returns less than 6%, he'd charge no fee. He didn't have any of those because he's Warren Buffett. <laughs> and then he'd take a, a quarter of excess return over 6%. So if he made you 10%, he'd take 1%. If he made you uh, 14%, he'd take 2% all the way on up. Dougal's in the scenarios you just ran, you see how once you get above a certain threshold, taking fees out of that doesn't really kill you because you you're making these incredible returns. So like if you make 12% a year, you're in good shape and Buffett keeps 2%. I really think that's the model. I'll tell you why that's not the model. There's a thousand reasons for this, but one that sucks for the financial advisor because when the financial advisor has a down year, their income completely disappears. Two people argue that that incentivizes financial advisors to uh, take unwarranted risk, which I think if you can't trust your financial advisor to take unwarranted risk because you think they're going to take uh, go for a short-term gain, then you have their wrong financial advisor in the first place. Have you heard the reason that's frequently argued in favor of asset-based fees, the 1% fee? Have you heard that discussion? I have not heard a good one. I've heard like it's what other people do. There are definitely some positives there. So one, it allows it allows the younger less experienced or less wealthy clients to not have a huge burden of taking on a financial advisor. So if you're 25 years old and you have a small base, at that point you get into the game, you tap into some of that uh, expert wealth, but you don't pay a crazy burden. Like if you would just talk about that $5,000, $6,000 level, that's a lot of money for someone who's 25. You're basically saying at that lower asset level, it becomes a regressive tax. Effectively, yes. yeah, right, yeah. yeah, that makes and, sense. And so you get in a foot, a foot in the door with to get that wealth, to build that wealth, and you effectively, there's like this handshake agreement that I'm gonna pay you a little more money 20 years down the line than I'm paying you today, and that's all gonna come out in the wash. I'm not, why, I'm just telling what you what people say. I'm not saying it's good. Why is that person going to a financial advisor? Like buy a Vanguard ETF. I, you, you know what I mean? Like I'm gonna. I'm going to bring you my $3,000 and have you figure out no, how to allocate I mean, it. Like, no financial what? advisor takes $3,000. I, I mean, it might be more like 50 to 100K. And very few financial advisors will even talk to you at that level. Yeah, but um, even, because... even then, why, yeah, why are you going to a financial advisor? Like the, the allocation there is like, you know, put this much in Dogecoin and put this much in Tesla. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know what you're... It just doesn't this is seem... kind of, I mean, this is kind of hilarious because the guy who runs a financial podcast is going, "Hey, why does anyone else need financial advice?" Like, <laughs> not no, everyone. I'm saying, why do I go to a financial advisor? That's very different than that. Like, having a human being that tells you how to allocate that, I think, is different even than um, doing some self service research to figure out like what, how do I build in my nest egg? Oh uh, I mean, gosh, I don't want to get off topic here. I think, I think, a large, a majority of the population, maybe it's not a large majority hates this stuff, finds this stuff incredibly confusing. And basically there that creates a disconnect with the fees too. They go, someone else can handle this for me and not totally mess it up. Like go for it. And then on top of that, you talk about the fee disconnect between many people don't even realize that they're paying that 1% fee. Or if they do, they do the math one time when they have 10,000 bucks or a hundred thousand bucks and go, Oh, that's not too bad. And then 30 years later, when they're in the millions, they're not actually realizing the check they're writing over because they don't actually write the check. It gets pulled out 
of their accounts in a way that's confusing and complex. Sorry. Sorry if I got if I took us off topic there. But it's a big deal. Hey, just Pay be attention. aware. And, but don't be so afraid that you never want to talk to a financial professional. That's the only thing I'd advise. Because a lot of times that value, like if we're talking 5,000, say you have 2 million in the bank and you're talking about partnering with someone proactively and it only costs you 5,000 bucks a year, if they're good, you're going to make way more than that. Let me let me back up because I, I think I may have uh, thrown my words out there into the ether too aggressively. I, I do think that it is beneficial to talk to someone about financial advice, like to get advice financially. I more meant why are you having someone manage your money, which I think is a different, like that's a different ballgame. I apologize. Yeah, but there, there are things around taxes that you should be aware of. You should be aware of places that that you may be spending more, not saving more and things. I, I think that like advice is good, but at that level, I honestly, I'm like, there are ETFs exist for a reason. They're low cost. And that helps you to start to build some of this stuff. And you don't have to get buck wild crazy with it. That's all I'm saying. Anyway, all right, I apologize. You, are you setting me up? Jim O'Shaughnessy sent out a, an investment research paper this week. I feel like you're, you're setting me up. This is a big joke called, why do inter- individual exhibit investment biases? It's large hypothesis, although I didn't do a deep dive is basically you're born with the temperament to be a good investor or a bad investor. Dougals, that's why people pay, that's why some people pay other people to manage their investments because some people don't have a great temperament for this. They're gonna be too emotional. And in that case, don't you see some value here? You just put it, okay, yes, sure. <laughs> I, 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 I do broadly see value in that. So let me not, let me not, not go too deep there. Now that you switch topics, <laughs> I will go deeper into this. I respect academics. And I know that these individuals that wrote this probably spent a good amount of time with this data and good for them. And it's kind of a Here bunch of nonsense. Here comes the trash talk. Here so, comes the trash talk. Kind of a bunch of nonsense. So yes, so this paper, here's what the paper did. It, it looked at this data set um, in Sweden. Apparently Sweden has the largest database of twin registries that, that exists. And so, yeah, so basically what, what they did was they said, we're going to look at this, uh, this twin registry database, and we're going to look at fraternal twins, we're going to look at identical twins, and we're going to map what the database says of who these people are to what their investment uh, holdings are and how they treat their investments. And then we're going to see what the differences are. And so they basically looked at the, the performance and the holdings of a whole bunch of twins, fraternal and identical, right? and then said, is there correlation? And they found that identical twins have a higher portfolio correlation than non-identical twins. I'm oversimplifying, but okay. Can I just so then say the that away, there's the studies from over 30,000 twins, which is an impressive number of twins. I it's, a lot of, it's a lot of twins. And so the, the, take, the big takeaway they have is that uh, genetics make up, uh, I think it was at least 50% is what they stated, um, yeah. of your investment bias. I have so many things to say about this, but the, the simplest thing I have to say is like, obviously is first. Now I, I won't go to the obviously. other part. The, 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 there's a part of this. They say that they're like, education actually doesn't have much to do with your investment bias. Let's go. Okay. Here comes. Dougal's. No, it depends on your education. Here comes Just... the Dougal's train. Here comes the Dougal's train. So we talk a lot about how psychology is a really big part of investing, right? Obviously, your genetics has something to do with your psychology. Like, obviously. 
sorry, I could have saved you a whole bunch of time in writing this paper, but obviously psychology has a whole bunch to do. But the, the, the part that I, I feel like I, I don't want to say disagree because the, these people are just being academic and writing this paper, but where I push back on some of the takeaway from this paper is how you manage that psychology can actually have like education can influence that a lot can influence that. And I also, in, in the whole identical twin thing, like there's a lot that goes into identical, it's more than genetics go into identical twins. If they said we took identical twins and shipped them into different places across the globe and then studied how they invested, that's one thing. These twins probably also talk. Like someone's probably like, I bought, I bought Tesla. Oh, I'm going to buy Tesla too. Correlation, baby. Wait, wait, wait. Can I just, have you ever heard the phrase, you're one in a million, right? Like, I hear it that always... Uh, well, so that always bothers me because that means there's, uh, if there's 7 billion people on earth, that means there's 7,000 people that are just like you. Dougals, you are one in 7 billion. You're the only person that went to a Wu-Tang concert last night that's fired up about an investment study on twins and, <laughs> and how they talk to each other and they're correlated. So props <laughs> to you, Dougals. All right. So after all that, thank you. Appreciate it. There was one thing that I thought was interesting about this paper and it had nothing to do with their their takeaways nothing to do with their takeaways what i think is interesting that i'm going to see if if it's possible to access is one of the databases they used for the study so apparently until 2007 taxpayers in sweden had a wealth tax on their assets that were not businesses yes so isn't this isn't this where the is ikea from sweden they sorry side tangent I think they pay like speeding tickets as a percent of salary because they're really progressive that way. And so okay. <laughs> the guy from Ikea got a speeding ticket and it turned out he owed like five billion, no, five million dollars <laughs> <laughs> or five hundred thousand dollars or something ridiculous because it was like 0.01% of annual salary. Isn't that hilarious? Think before you speed. Oh, yeah, I interrupted. Speed. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that's all right. Um, so when I when I was mentioning before about their methodology, they took this twins database and then they married it to investment data. And the reason they could have this investment data was because like if if we look at what we might do in the US, we can look at transactions like retail investor transactions, yeah. but not it's not as easy to get holdings. But they could look at what people actually held because of this wealth tax. And so looking up into 2007, there's this database that shows all the holdings of individuals because you get taxed based on your stock holdings. Because what I'm curious about this database is I wonder if you can look at just like what was the impact of having that historically the fact that they abolished it makes me think that it didn't turn out to be very favorable but I just I saw that and I was like that is really interesting because that's a pretty recent time frame right at which there was this wealth tax and so there's likely data that we could probably look at publicly that shows what the impact of the wealth tax was on both what Sweden was able to to get government wise and also uh, with the what impact that might have had on savings and investment and whatnot. So that's the part that I actually thought was most interesting. Love it. Yeah, that's really good. Thank you for diving into that. I saw the headline, thought it was kind of interesting, didn't get a chance to dive in, but I learned a bunch from you. I appreciate it. Thanks for sending can it I, over. I didn't see it, so appreciate it. Can I yeah, tell you my in. favorite uh, joke from this week? I guess. It's a, it's a joke that wasn't intended to be a joke. So our boy, Morgan Housel on Twitter, simply ask, what aren't people talking enough about? And he got this reply <laughs> that says how 70 to 80 year olds are generally regarded as unemployable due to mental decline and skill mismatch 
yet they're exclusively running the country. Love it. I, I mean, love this. <laughs> it makes me laugh so much. And then like five seconds later, it makes me get really depressed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, There's, I love it. I mean, are we breaking that down or are we just, uh, are we just no, leaving it's, it be? It, no, it's too sad. I can't talk about that. <laughs> okay, one other admin thing. I want to give a shout out to HFR Capital in Paris. We appreciate the qu- kind words. That was awesome. Thank you. Yeah, love seeing that. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And thank you for being a listener in general. Can I give one other shout out too? Oh, please. We're, this is the shout out section of the show. Oh, okay. New, a new section. So I want to give a shout out to something that I found on Substack uh, that I'm going to I'm going to be reading, but probably for a little while. It's Roaring 20s Substack. So this guy, James Tate, he's a former hedge fund analyst. He's started reading the Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal from 100 years ago. And so from the 1920s. And on Sundays, he summarizes what he's read in the papers um, from whatever week he's reading, and he summarizes what he found. And his plan is to do this on a weekly basis up until he gets to the crash of 1929. And the point is basically like, what was the actual sentiment of that time? And what were two of the you know major papers at that, that time starting to say? I think it's going to be more interesting when you get the whole, he's in like 1921 right now, and it's mm-hmm. like not quite close enough. But I think when you get that whole body, it's going to be pretty fascinating read. So I just want to give a shout out there. It's roaring20s.substack.com. Such an awesome idea, right? I just love it. I wonder if his timing of the crash is going to match. I mean, he's clearly doing this because you hear people speculate that we might be in something like the 20s and wonder when the crash is coming. How quickly will he get to 1929 based on his current pace? I mean, if he's really doing a week, a week, and he's eight years away, um, that's... Um, like the that was my question. Happened. Yeah, it seems like he needs to do happened. a month a week or yeah. something. Like speed up, speed things up a little bit. Here's what here's what I imagine that he ends up doing. This might be wrong, but I imagine he's going to go week by week, such that he can get a bit of a following and whatnot. And then when our market actually starts to tank, he probably accelerates the crap out of it, and then starts to do more. Well, maybe he doesn't do this, but this is what I would do. And he starts to do more comparisons. Like then I start. I think he starts to look at. Um, he accelerates the pace to get to 1929 and then starts to compare articles of what we're writing in the Wall Street Journal now to like side by side to what was happening then. Like that, that's that's what I would think that somebody would do. But we'll see. But at this pace, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm going to be 89. Um, really, I'm going to be yelling about how my HVAC stocks have finally paid off and <laughs> he's finally gotten there. Yeah. Um, if you're into market history, another great uh, follow is investor amnesia on twitter it's jamie catherwood great guy works with the shaughnessy's and uh does a weekly newsletter that's just kind of based on current events and then he finds the historical reference to that sometimes going back 400 gears um really good stuff there so check that out do you want to talk chris dixon let's do it all right so chris dixon is he works for a16z investing in crypto so again let's just reset yep. on his tilt on the world his agenda. Right? Yep. Uh, he had a tweet storm this week that I just think is really interesting. I want to hit the highlights and, and Dougal's jump in. He talks about going from web two to web three, which if you're not familiar, web two is kind of where we live today with the rise of the Amazons and the Facebooks and, and those sorts of companies and web three people speculate is uh, more of a crypto based web where 
crypto truly takes over and becomes the monetary currency of the web. So he says, Jeff Bezos famously said, in the web 2.0 world, your margin is my opportunity, uh, referring to how Amazon took market share by lowering prices and eating into competitors' margins, right? I love that line, by the way. I love that line. It's great. So he is saying, you know, Craigslist did this to classifieds, which that killed the newspapers effectively. Google and Facebook did this with media, which also also hurt the newspapers. TripAdvisor and Airbnb did it with travel, like all this stuff. Which uh, also what, hurt the newspapers. <laughs> which, which also crushed. Oh, <laughs> this is why I don't own any newspapers. There we go. <laughs> so he talks about how he hypothesizes that Web3 and crypto basically does this at a different level of scale. And he starts by talking about the video game industry. So uh, the video game industry does $120 billion per year. It's bigger than I thought, Dougal. So it's a big thing. It's big. And the way he talks about this, he, he talks about a take rate, which is like, we'll just call it kind of the profit that that video game creator takes from the transactions happening on their platform. Gosh, I don't really play video games, but... It could be anything from Farmville to Call of Duty to whatever. When there's monetary transactions taking place, a big cut of that is being taken out by the Activision or whoever else, right? Perhaps a more relatable to the resonant with the everyday person that's listening here. You can think about Apple um, in, a, in a similar camp. When you're playing games on Apple and you're buying something in one of the games on Apple, Apple takes 30%. Yep. So I don't claim to be an expert here, but he's saying that's high. And he's relating that back to Amazon going, your margin is my opportunity. And so he says in Web3, aka cryptos, games will reduce this take dramatically. For example, Access Infinity, which we'll talk about in a second, has generated a billion in gross sales in this past year. And their effective tax rate is 4.25% rather than what he's saying that the historical norm is as a hundred percent. Now, I didn't know what Access Infinity is, right? So I Googled that up. It is a gaming platform called, that is branded as a digital nation. Here's some stats on it. There is over 90,000 ETH traded in their in-house marketplace. That's ETH the crypto. The most expensive asset ever sold in this place is 300 ETH, I think, ETH is worth about 3K right now. I mean, that's a significant chunk of money. Wow. Um, and it's an interesting thing that I need to learn more about. Can I, hopefully I, I did that justice with his high level argument there. I mean, can, can I step back and just get your thoughts on that? On the broad take rate piece? Yeah, and kind of Web3 as well. The Web3 thing, I, I don't, I, I don't want to comment on exactly what Web3 is because you can always... I don't know. We can kind of figure that out. But I think this this relates partially back to, don't tell me if I'm forcing this, back to what we just talked about with Substack, because that falls into this category of helping creators to keep right what they create. So yeah. the, the thought process behind the uh, many of the current platforms is we will create a distribution channel for you to get your stuff out there. And as a fee for that service, we'll take part of what you bring in. Because if I'm, if I'm, if I'm allowing you to make three times as much money and I'm taking five, 10, 15% of that, like that's really reasonable. You're making a lot more money. I'm taking a cut, right? Makes sense. Um, but then you have a platform like Substack basically that comes in 
that's saying, we're going to give you a platform for you to make money. That's kind of, and I, I think that that's what, that's part of what he's saying is that there are these places where you can say, instead of giving somebody 30%, I'm going to create a platform. I'm going to take either, maybe not 0%, but I'm going to take something significantly less than 30% yeah. and still give that same service. Say I'm all three about three to 5%. Yeah, exactly. And, exactly. and I where think, Chris I think it makes a lot of sense. Where Chris Dixon goes with this next is he talks about NTFs and musicians and, and the huge cut that the record labels take today that he thinks maybe they won't take in the future because the mus musician has like this direct to consumer model where they could get a keep the majority of the revenue. I think yeah. you've seen people experiment with that, not necessarily in the MTF space, but like some people, you know, the old historical knowledge of the musician sold a CD to you for 15 bucks, Wu-Tang Clan, of course. Well, Wu-Tang might've got a dollar of that by the time everything else gets taken out. If Wu-Tang can go direct to consumer, and a lot of uh, people have done this through touring in a way because you keep a much larger cut of that. But if they could if they could sell you the music for five bucks and keep four bucks of that, I mean, their economics just improved drastically and you're also paying one third as much. Yeah, the music thing is wild, especially the way it used to be. At least from my understanding, I'm not in the music world, but there's more knowledge out there that exists for artists, right, to not get taken advantage of. But have you heard the TLC stories from back in the day? No. So, you know, TLC, the, the group of women, right, had their R&B, a yeah. little bit of hip hop Don't going go on chasing in the 90s. Waterfalls, dude. Don't be chasing waterfalls. So apparently they were at the point where they were getting so taken advantage of that Left Eye at one point, that's the L in TLC, Left Eye had gone to prison for something. I'm sure she was falsely accused. Anyway, she went to prison for something. And while she's in prison, she met some very nice people. And she came out of prison and they were like, we, we are basically broke, but we're making so much money for the record labels. And Left Eye said, well, let me call my friends from prison. And they showed up <laughs> to the Don't record worry. label, guns loaded. <laughs> like, and, and that, that's how they got their deal renegotiated, right? <laughs> Today, you don't have to do all that. But anyway, yes, it's it real. And so that was web 1.0, uh, where you have to. <laughs> <laughs> where you need guns. Uh, anyway, it's fascinating stuff. Obviously, then this goes down the the thousand true fans argument, which we can talk about another time. I think generally this is better for both the producer of the content and the consumer of the content. Hypothetically, it's going to be fascinating. I think the the broad premise of uh, economic shifting to coming from a different source, I think, is, is right. I mean, we've we've touched on that in a variety of ways. Even we were talking about the buy now, pay later stuff, or have we talked about Robin Hood, right? You just say, yeah. people don't want to pay in this way. We're going to get them to pay in this way. And we just have to figure out where the, the money has to come from somewhere. So this is not going to be altruistic, where it's like, oh, that, that take rate's not fair. Let me just decrease it. The money will come from somewhere. And that, that somewhere could be that we've learned how to just get massive volume so we can take less. It could come from that. Or it could be that we've just figured out another way to make money from somewhere else, but it's got to come from somewhere. So I'm, I'm curious to watch this and, and see what it looks like. But I think this is a great tweet storm. Appreciate you sending it over. Good stuff. Well, uh, listen, we love the listener mail. Thanks, Josh. Please keep hitting us up. Skippy Doogles at Gmail and at Skippy Doogles on Twitter. Thanks for listening.